Hi, I'm Ariana. And I'm Kaylee. And welcome back to the Unproblematic Podcast. We are two 20-something Midwest friends who have a lot to say. This podcast talks about life, college, travel, feminism, social justice, relationships, and of course, literature and writing. Come join us on our podcasting journey. Yes, and in this installment of Unproblematic, um, Kaylee and I and a special guest will be discussing racism um, that women of color face in professional settings and we're going to be talking about a few articles that we have read within the last couple of weeks regarding this topic. So we want to welcome back our first guest. She was actually, no, you were our second guest. Yeah. You were our second guest. BB, the uh, most famous grandma. <laughs> 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 Thank you for joining us back on this episode. We loved your conversation about the last episode. If you haven't listened to it, it was talking about um, international travel. Um, and she was telling us about all her trips that she's taken. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is still my wanna... favorite podcast we have in, in all the podcast <laughs> episodes that we've done. So maybe this one will be a competitor. But so far, that one's my favorite. We have, I've had a couple of people message me saying, oh my gosh, your grandma is so cute. So fun. Wow. Well, Ke- Kaylee is a fellow traveler. Yeah, but you yes, have way does. more stories than I do. You still got time. <laughs> That's true. Well, I mean, I don't know with COVID. Let's, let's hope. I'm, we can oh leave my the country well, eventually. Kaylee, it won't be here forever. That's true. Well, yeah, that's true. Yep. Just then, <laughs> Beanie was traveling last year and she was 84. You've got to, COVID won't last that long until you're 84 years old. Yeah, it feels yeah, like that. It feels like that sometimes you said? Yeah, my, I was with a friend the other day and she said, when you say a post COVID world, it's starting to sound like when I win the lottery. Like when COVID <gasps> over, when I win the lottery. <laughs> like it's in that same vein of like impossible things that you're going to magically bring to fruition. <laughs> Yes, and you know, but we gotta stay positive. <laughs> All right, sorry, okay. Ariana, what are you reading and watching? Okay, um, yeah, we got off on a tangent, but I am reading "No Offense" by Meg Cabot and "Americana" by Chamanda Ngozi Adichie, and "No Offense" um is Meg Cabot's newest book, and I, I don't know how I feel about it so far, so. I love Meg Cabot. I love all of her books. Like, there's not one book that I don't like. But this one, I think it's hard for me to get into. And I don't know if it's because, like, the characters are a lot older in the sense that, like, one of the main characters could be, like, my parents' age or or that one of the main characters is a cop dating a librarian. I don't know if that, like... I I don't know. So I don't know what it is, but the writing is still really good and the storytelling Meg Cabot is a spectacular writer, but um I don't dislike the book, but it's just it just hasn't gripped me because typically her books I can read them in a day or two cuz like you just can't stop reading them, but this one isn't like that and I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe I just haven't gotten to the interesting part yet. I'm only like 40 pages in. But Americana on the other hand Kaylee and I are reading that together and I think we talked about that a little bit last time and it's getting a lot better I do like it a lot more now and um 
the main character is a warrior. And I just, you get to see a lot of personality within the characters because um, the main two characters, it flips back and forth sometimes and from past to present. And I really enjoy the writing. Um, but it definitely took a couple, like a couple chapters because I don't, I didn't know how I was liking where the story was going at first, but now I'm all good. Um, but going on to what I'm watching, this sounds so bad. I have, I don't know if it's because we've been in quarantine so long or I just, you know, just want to feel young again. I don't know. I mean, I'm not even that old. I'm only, <laughs> I'm in my early 20s. So, <laughs> but this, I was, start, I started watching Total Drama Island again. Oh my God. <laughs> it's on, it's on Netflix, guys. And it's a Canadian cartoon, but it played on Cartoon Network. And it was about like, it's about, I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's about um, like 25 contestants, like teenagers. They go to this like deserted island and they stay on a camp and they like try to do all these challenges to get fame and fortune. So like they it's crazy stuff like they have to like like crazy challenges like they had to build their own bikes and like there's there's the characters are so stereotypical like you've got to have the mean one you've got to have the dumb one you've got to have the smart one you got to have the athletic one you've got to have the pretty one so like they're all very like shallow characters but it's very funny like it's just so crazy and honestly like the humor like some of the stuff that goes on it I think like went over my head when I was younger but now that I'm watching it as an adult I'm like oh my god this is this is like crazy it's kind of like when you watch Spongebob when you're younger all that stuff goes over your head like when he was talking about what does it mean to have a felony and he's like Squidward goes it means you're too darn happy all the time and Spongebob goes oh my gosh I have lots and lots of felonies and then I was like oh my god a felony is not a good thing so I mean, things change, but it's a good show. It's a good show. So what are you watching, Kaylee? Yeah, the name of Total Drama Island is pretty is a pretty good representation of everything that happens in it. Plus, I don't I don't <laughs> think you're ever too young to have nostalgia because like you talk to little kids, even like nine or ten year olds, and they're like, When I was six, I did this. And there's like this level of I've matured so much past that. So I think as long as we're capable of memory, we're capable of nostalgia. So I don't think you're ever too young for it. But um, Okay, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm reading so okay, so the thing that is definitely shaking my world right now is I'm reading Intimations by Zadie Smith, and that's a collection of essays about the quarantine. This woman has already written a staggering, beautiful collection of work about the quarantine since everything happened in March. And I'm not gonna lie I've cried at pretty much every single essay because she just she's so intelligent and she has so much compassion for people and like her her voice has just really spoken a lot of humanity I think into a very like divisive time and one of the things I love about her is that even though she identifies as like progressive or left or whatever she has so much like compassion for working class people and for people who see things very differently from her and she never approaches things in like a in like a very black and white way of thinking she has a very like um like she has a lot of grace for people and I think that could just be because she's a novelist and she's used to trying to incorporate other perspectives in her work and think about how several different characters would think 
but it also extends to her like political analysis. So I really, really enjoy that about her. Um, and then I'm also reading Hangs a Man by Shirley Jackson, which is really good. She writes about mental health in a really haunting way, especially when, I mean, I'm sure this is just sort of that myopic vision of youth, but I feel like our generation has sort of evolved into talking about mental health and created this whole narrative around it. And so, like, in my mind, I sort of equate mental health with, like, this generation, and and that's it. And we're the only ones who have ever talked about it ever, which, of course, is very ridiculous because Shirley Jackson and several other people have already written about it. But I, I really like the way she characterizes it, and she has very creative ways of showing how anxiety and how, um, like, your imagination can take hold of you. So it's it's a really, really good book. I highly recommend it. And then, of course, I'm reading Americana with Ariana. And I love this book. I think part of it is because I've watched so many interviews with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and I just really appreciate her voice. And I love how confident she is. And um, so I had sort of like a background to this book that affected my idea of it from the beginning. But I also agree with Ariana. It's definitely getting better and the plot is thickening. And she's like really bringing you into her character's development as well. And then I'm reading Lunch Poems by Frank O'Hara. And okay, so something with poetry. I've never, I don't know if anyone else ever feels that this way, but I never got poetry for a long time. Like there were certain poems by people who were like, you know, indubitably great that I was like, wow, that was really good. Like Carl Sandburg. like you read that and you can't not think that it's awesome. But a lot of poets, I was just kind of like, I don't get it. But I started reading them out loud to myself and you can hear the assonance and like the rhythm a lot better. And that really did change everything. I heard several other people recommend it and I didn't do it because I was like, that's weird. I don't want my roommates to hear me talking to myself, but it honestly changes so much if you read it out loud. Um, and then right now I'm reading The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. So, yeah, that was kind of a mouthful. But, BB, what are you reading and watching? Wait, wait, wait. Before BB says anything, I have a quick thought about you were, about um, the one by Shirley Jackson. You were talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of something that happened in Americana. The main character was talking about, um, she was like, uh, um, someone told her, like, I think you have depression. She's like, I do not have depression. Like, mm. I don't have it. But then she was like, you think about like how other generations are like, I don't, I don't remember having depression when I was your age, but that's because you guys didn't talk about it just because it's not talked about and undiagnosed does not mean that it's not real. (laughs) And I think that's just one quick thing that I wanted to say, because I remember I was reading Americana earlier today and it it happened. She was talking about depression in um, the part that I was at. Yeah. But BB, what are you reading? Ah. Well, I should read this book on the mental health because that apparently some of the views about mental health have changed. Uh, I've read a lot of nonfiction recently, um, but before I get into that, I want to um, talk about um, The Vanishing Half. I did read that. Ariana Ooh. gave it to me to read. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it struck a familiar uh, chord. Because um, in this book, they are twins. And they're very fair. Both of them, they grow up in a small town. And they kind of run away together to the big city in the South. And um, one of them just decides to leave and pass herself off as white. 
And chiefly it's because she met um, a white man whom she was working for in his office and they fell in love. The other one um, felt very much abandoned and um, she married a man who was really quite dark. Um, and so you got into the what in, in the black community is usually called high yellow. It's what, the way he perceived her. But anyway, they go two separate paths and the, the, the experience that they both have was just fascinating to me because um, the one who married the black man, um, it didn't work out. And she ran away back home, um, met another man. And of course, that her life went a whole different direction. But it was what was interesting to me was the experience that this woman had who passed. Um, she had a lot more privilege, of course, but she was always uh, feeling insecure because she knew who she was, but everybody else did not. Hmm. And um, it was just fascinating to see that. I've known people, actually, in my own family, who just left the South, went to New York and passed, and we never saw them again. So, you know, it was it, it really struck home with me. Wow. Anyway, oh, wow. that's one of the things that, that I was reading. But the other um, is I, I read, read Tough Love by Susan Rice. And that is really kind of a memoir of her experiences with um, um, working with the president and being a representative in the UN and that kind of thing. And was surprised to see that she actually grew up in a very privileged environment. Um, so that, that was, <clears throat> I thought that was very insightful. Um, then um, I've been reading and finished actually White Fragility. It's a fascinating book. Um, it's by Robin D'Angelo. And she talks about this whole matter of white privilege. I mean, she really lays it out about how it works and why whites don't want to talk about it. And, um, you know, a lot of what she said were things that I knew already, but I had not thought about them in this frame. Um, and the introduction to her book was written by one of our um, best known so sociologists. Uh, he came to Saginaw Valley. Oh, um, Eric, Michael Eric Dyson. Michael Eric Dyson, mm. who's a brilliant man. But anyway, um, it's, it's a very interesting book. Um, and um, let me see, what else was I reading? Um, I talked about that and talked about, oh, I did finish um, and read this month. It's, I'm, uh, it's, it's not about the burqa. And, and we'll talk about that later. But I was fascinated with that book, too, because it's Muslim women and uh, wanting to find their voice. And it, it started me thinking about um, women in other countries and women in the United States as well. So I think that's going to be part of our conversation later. But um, I, I, that was one of the books. And, and I want to thank you, Kaylee, for recommending it and, and, and loaning it to me. Yeah, thank you for reading it. I always appreciate being able to talk about books instead of just kind of keeping it all inside. So, And you always bring good insights as well. Um, could I ask you like a little bit more about what you thought about white fragility and, um, and oh, what was the other book you just said? The one about Susan Which Rice. One? 
Huh? Um, oh, the vanishing half. Yeah. Like, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about both of those. Like, White Fragility, I, I don't know. There's There's been a storm of media about everything in the past couple of months. And I've heard some people, um, like, a couple different articles say that White Fragility was a little bit too heavy-handed. That, it, like, it diminished Black people. That it said that they needed to be talked down to. I just saw a lot of different criticisms of that. But I was just curious what your thoughts about the book was. Um, I don't think it's heavy-handed. I think it's really honest. And I think she um, she touches upon some things which are true. Um, certainly, they are things that I have observed over the years. Um, we never named it. You know, we didn't name it Fragility. But even when I grew up, uh, my mother worked in um, domestic work. And so did my husband's mother. And so we learned that you not only have to know uh, who you are, you have to know who they are. And you, uh, because you are very dependent on employment, that you don't, um, I should say, you avoid saying things that would um, offend them or, or make them nervous, okay? Not so much offensive as nervous or angry even. Um, we always knew that, um, that those were things that we had to be aware of. My mother told me a story about um, her going to work for a lady in South Carolina whose name was Mrs. Melville. I knew Mrs. Melville. And she was a nice old lady. Um, she loved my mother, you know, as love goes. And um, when my mother met my father and thought that she would, they would get married, Mrs. Melville said to her, you'll have to bring him by here for me to see and talk with him and see if he uh, is a good person. <laughs> so my father actually went to meet with her. What? Yeah, <sighs> so that she could give her approval. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, they wanted to protect you all the time. And the, the other experience I don't think I will ever forget is that Ms. Melvin had a daughter whose name was Betty. We always called her Miss Betty. And when I was born, when my mother was pregnant, um, she asked my mother to name me, if she had a girl, to name it after her. So my mother did. Okay, that's how come I, I'm, I'm Betty. Okay, so she was always very, um, she was going to be my godmother, and she was. And during any holiday, you know, she would always remember me with gifts and she'd come by the house and we lived in a black neighborhood. She lived way across town. But anyway, she'd come and bring gifts and all of that. So I grew up knowing, you know, her and um, she never stayed that long, but um, I, I knew who she was and I knew that the relationship was a, an up and down thing. So anyway, I went to college, okay? Finished high school, went to college. And when I went to Washington, D.C., I learned that she was living in Alexandria, Virginia. So I called her and uh, said to her, you know, I, I'd like to see you. It's been years, you know. Uh, so she agreed to meet me in Washington for lunch. Well, I thought that we would meet and have conversation. And, you know, I was not a child any longer. But 
when we did meet, it was so uncomfortable for her. She didn't quite know how to talk to me. Hmm. And it hit me then that she was most comfortable when she was in charge. She was the giver and I was the receiver. She was not prepared to talk to me as someone who had accomplished a degree or had a job or was a professional. She had gotten married out of high school and, um, you know, and she had been protected really all her life. So the fact is that later her husband left her and she committed suicide, which I thought was so sad. Oh. Yeah, but, but the point was that she had actually, she was not as strong as I was. It took, it, and I began to realize that, that the kind of separation that went on nurtured and protected white women, but white men were the ones in charge. They were the ones that those women depended on. Uh, in the black community, we, you know, we just, we had to, we had to develop ourselves. And I remember my father saying to me, you better develop your mind because you know, you're not going to make it with your body. So, oh my God, that's what I did. <laughs> but those are the things I thought about as, um, I, I, as I read this white fragility. I think that those things that she talks about have been true all along, Kaylee, mm. but we never talked about them. And what she does is kind of open up the book, the picture, to look at what is the source of white privilege. And is it really a good thing? You know, she really does ask that question. And I think that she makes a good case for the fact that we are all stronger if we're stronger and equal to and, 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 and um, go after equality together that women have a lot more in common, whether they are white or black, mm -hmm. you know? So, so that's my comment on that. And what was the other thing you asked me? She asked about the vanishing half. Oh, what about the vanishing half? <laughs> yeah. I, what are you curious about? Um, like, yeah. What did, what did you think about, um, like, especially the relationship between the daughters between, I think their names were Kennedy and Jude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, what yeah that like that just really struck me I think I thought it was interesting kind of like what you were saying like used to the relationship between a giver and a taker um mm. to the to the extent that like Kennedy really saw herself as giving to Jude by being friends with her and that just really hit me whenever Kennedy would talk it was like she really thinks that she's being a good person just by just by being around Jude like, she's so condescending that she thinks by letting Jude take care of her, really, like, she's, you know, she thinks that's a gift. It just, it just, it, it was so comical in a terrible way, you know. And the, and the but, sad part. But you know what, that's, kind of, that, that's, a lot of people are like that, Kaylee. And, and you'll find that as you go through the world. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. There are those people who think that they are God's gift. And um, that, don't you think so? Huh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I know a lot of people who think that. Yeah, and that the world, and that the world owes them something, you know? But, but the sad part was like, that Kennedy failed to realize in the book is that Jude was only hanging out with you just so she could get to know her aunt. 
And the other thing is nobody really liked Kennedy because she was mean and rude and expected people to wait on her. Like she had been spoiled. We say that was spoiled. She was spoiled rotten. And the other thing is like you were talking about the two identities of the sisters. And the thing was, my thing is that, um, why am I forgetting, uh, what is the, not, what is the mom's name? The one who passes for white. What is her Stella? name? Why is Stella. Thank you. Stella, I, like, when you, Kaylee, we had this discussion. We were talking about, like, which one would you rather be? Like, even though Stella had all these material items, she was not happy. She was too busy hiding. And I'm like, that's exhausting. Mm, it is. I, I would much rather be who... I am then hide behind this facade and pretend I'm so much better than other people then. And the other thing is she had a trash relationship with her daughter. They didn't even have a good relationship where at least Jude and her mom had a really good relationship, even though they didn't have that many material items. And it shows you again, that material items do not make you happy. It is who you are makes you happy and who you surround yourself with. And like the other thing is how can you have a, a true and, a true marriage if you can't even tell your husband hey like i'm actually black like you know right. what i mean like right. can you imagine that would be a trust issue with it yeah such a crucial aspect of identity and yeah i yeah i i think that people who do who do that pass and really do pay a price for it it's like they make a trade you know they want more privilege and more um material gain but they're always in some kind of nerve-wracking situation because they're afraid. And they're afraid of who to be friends with and who, and who can they trust, you know? Hmm. So I don't know. I, th- I thought that, that um, the life that she chose was unfortunate. But she went back to it, you know, even after she came home and for her she, mother's funeral. No. Yes, she did. She went back to that. No, she didn't. Yeah, she, she did. What? Yes, she was only there a day though. Stella, she came home and then she like left and went back to LA. That's what I said. She was only there a day. I swear yeah, it was only a day. Oh yeah, that's that's but... what BB said too. Oh okay, okay, okay. And she went back to her husband. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's so it's so crazy that the only person she had a true relationship with, the only one she actually shared any private information with was Loretta, who was the black neighbor across the street, who they ran out of the neighborhood because they, didn't they throw rocks through their windows? Yep. Yeah, yeah, somebody Which, did, but um, I, it was been interesting to know more about Loretta, but um, you know, they, they certainly were well off and they had, a, they had enough to be in that neighborhood, but I think that Stella was always afraid of her. Because that's because Loretta was comfortable with who she was. Absolutely. I mean, so, when you're a fragile and, person. And how, and how can you be comfortable with who you are if you're pretending to be something else? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so do you want to move on to segment two? To um, Not about the burqa? Yes, so... We wanted to talk, you know, BB. So BB and Kaylee were the ones who read it. So what happened was Kaylee <laughs> sent me the book. <laughs> Kaylee sent me the book, and I was like, "Okay, cool." And then I had a bunch of stuff on my to be read list, 
And then Kaylee was about to move and then BB read it. And I was like, you know what? Let me just ship this back to her because mm-hmm. it's going to be sitting here for a while. Because you're so busy it's... reading about this cop and this librarian instead of about. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 just, I know oh you have a thriving bookstagram. You have to keep up. I understand. <laughs> no, it's just that like I have I before that book, I have had so many things on my to be read list like Americana. I'm just not reading that. And it has been on my shelf for like two years. <laughs> well, I'm two years. <laughs> well, you guys are reading Isabel Wilkerson's book. No, no, no. We said we wanted to. Oh, well, you know, she just has another one out called Cast. I heard that was good. And I saw your copy on the table. Yeah, I got that. I haven't started it yet, but but um I do have it. Mm-hmm. And I and I am going to read it. Um but she had a long article in uh the New York Times magazine that gives you a lot of insight into what her argument is. Mm-hmm. And um it's it's very interesting because she tries to argue that uh there's a system beneath a structural system that will not change. It does not change. And, and that no matter how many laws we make and how, how um, much advancement you may seem to get, um, that there still is this caste system that um, places you in a particular order in terms of society. And I don't know that I fully agree with that. I think caste is really kind of strong, you know, thing, but to talk about in the United States. But um, there's a lot in that book, uh, in the article at least, that makes you think about why it is that we're still talking about the same things now, the same issues that we were talking about almost 100 years ago. So... Um, and we went through the civil rights um, movement and, you know, got all those laws. And now, you know, they let them expire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I do think that there's something that we're not seeing. I don't know that it can be explained by caste, but that's certainly something that, that we, and, and frankly, I think that all the anger that we see among young Blacks um, particularly those that have been denied um, entry into most anything and have struggled hard, um, I think that anger is well taken, actually, because, you know, the parent, our parents worked hard to make opportunities for us. It kind of reminded me of this post I saw on Twitter and it was when, like, or it was like when the beginning of the riot, the, I don't even want to call it a riot, protests were, it's not a riot, it's a protest. When the protests were starting and people were just voicing their opinions um, and people were like, why are you burning down your own community? Na, 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 na. Uh, someone said, someone tweeted this, uh, <laughs> black people built this country and you should be lucky that they don't want to burn it to the ground. They just want equality and to be treated fairly and I, that just struck that just struck me I read that and I'm like you know what <laughs> they're not wrong yeah I um yeah. a lady from my church sent me a message of a white lady and because I had posted Black Lives Matter and so she sent me this message about Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization yada 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 um and we had a really good conversation and she actually said that she 
like she changed her mind about a lot of these things and she talked to my dad as well and she prayed through it and she has a different perspective about it now. Um, so that was pretty cool. It was profitable, but she said, um, that same, that same thing about like forgiveness and about, you know, the Bible stresses forgiveness, but, um, something that like my dad told me that I've really kept in mind too, is when he does like marital counseling and one partner has been unfaithful, um, that partner doesn't get to set the terms of the reconciliation. So if like one partner cheated on the other one, then they don't get to decide when and how they're coming back together. And I think we need to look at it that way in terms of the church and in terms of, I mean, especially the church, but then also in the country as a whole with reconciliation, like white people have done so many terrible things in our country's history. They don't get to set the terms of the reconciliation or demand forgiveness. That is like the ultimate just dehumanizing thing to say, we've committed all these acts of violence against you. But then sometimes like, even acknowledge that violence and sometimes just to deny it altogether and then to demand forgiveness on top of that. It's just so arrogant and yeah, not Christ-like. You know, what's interesting about that though, Kaylee, and I think about that a lot. It's, it's just fascinating to me that after all these years, after the slave experience, after the sharecropping, my grandparents were sharecroppers and uh, the the unfairness, you know, um, the exploitation of of all of that, and then um, the next generation uh, ha- had you know had had a push that they wanted to do better. It has been a struggle for more than a hundred years, and each generation came along and had its mission, and and mostly. You know, it's been a struggle, but but mostly the, those missions have been met. Um, I'm just fascinated. In this, and your generation, your generation is different in the sense that you have um, black and white young people working together. I think it's wonderful. Um, when they did the march in, in Midland, it was very mixed um, with young people black and white and and hispanic and lgbt etc et it's like the youth are coming together in their own movement and and i think that's good now i don't know how all this other stuff will will affect them in terms of uh the relationships in the future but i think that when i grew up we grew up with certain assumptions the world was as it was white folk were in charge and we knew that, okay. I mean, I grew up in a society where you couldn't drink in the same water fountain. You know, you could you could be arrested for drinking from the white fountain, um, which was always cooler water than the one for blacks because you know it was just rest just water, and the South was hot. But um, you know, we just knew that that's the way it was, and there's some things you could do and some things you could not do. So we lived within those assumptions. Now, as I got to be an adult, I thought I want out of that, you know. So I, I we have worked to get out of that. And, and so my life now is really quite different. And I had almost forgotten about the assumptions in which we live. Um, but my mother didn't. And when she first came to visit me here in Midland, and my aunts came to, I think it was a Thanksgiving celebration. 
And it was one incident that they just could not believe. We had a mixed group in for dinner and a, and a party. And somebody wasted um, soda or something on my carpet. And my good friend, Joya Spurger, who is white, got the, she knew enough about my house. She got the cleaner and she got on her knees and she cleaned it up. Well, my mother nearly, you know, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't figure this out. This white woman is down on her knees cleaning the carpet in my daughter's house here. Well, they talked about that in South Carolina for, for weeks about what they saw and how unusual that was. Um, but, you know, they were operating out now, they were operating under old assumptions. And that's what I came to understand, that, that we had a new set of assumptions that we could have friends that way. And um, maybe I would have helped the same way at her house had I been there because, you know, we were friends and she knew that I didn't want my carpet spoiled. So anyway, the, the point is that um, this whole thing about privilege, I think, is being challenged. And I think that's a good thing, too, because really, if we are, are honestly going to be about opportunity for all, all um, people, then we need to stop deciding who gets in and who doesn't, you know, who, who gets the privilege and who does not. And it should not be based on color at all. Um, and, and can we move on to talking about the burqa? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, um, I, can, I can just give, this is the main thing that I took away from that uh, book and then I want to discuss it with both of you as well. But um, so... I, it was really like humbling to hear from a lot of different Muslim women, um, especially like growing up in the church that I grew up in. Obviously, I think my dad's a great leader. He never enforced these kinds of ideas, but I encountered a lot of different pastors who did like the fact that Muslim pe or the idea that Muslim people were a particular kind of sinner and like a particular kind of danger. And there was a lot of, I think, subtle and not so subtle Islamophobia that was communicated to me. So it was really cool and um, really eye-opening to read essays of Muslim women who took their faith very seriously and their relationship with God very seriously. And um, I think to a much lesser extent in the United States, but to some extent I do relate to this, uh, one woman described the relationship between having to defend feminism in Muslim circles and having to defend Muslim culture and feminist circles. And I think that's something that you encounter with a religious faith, like in Christianity as well, where feminists will call it like authoritarian or say that it's a patriarchal society because you are a part of a religious institution. But then obviously in, in the church as well, there are some patriarchal practices that are handed down. So you sort of have to make a two-part defense for your beliefs. But then this one writer said that um, the, the whole intersection of faith and feminism is forming an identity that is completely dependent on God. Because without God, to some extent, your identity is defined by like, your relationship to a man, whether you're saying that yeah. you, are, you are equal to him or you're under him or you're over him. Like, there's some relevance of who you are and your identity to him. Whereas with God, like that is a that is an identity completely defined in him and, and man's identity doesn't really matter in terms of that. But so I really like that idea, but what do you two think? You know, have you ever thought about whether or not God is a man or a woman or, or 
what that gender might be, if there is one? I Yeah, I have thought about that. I've read a couple different things about that. Um, the sort of cop-out answer that I am hesitantly sitting in is that I think our conception of gender is so like flawed and so human that we couldn't really like the pronouns in the Bible are obviously masculine, like, but I mean, that could have just been the culture that they were written in. And I don't think that like God being a man or woman, it's just like, it's something that we in our limited view can't really get a good picture of, but that's the cop out answer. I sort of think about, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think he's like a man, man. I, I think God is, God. <laughs> but you know what, what the Bible says when he says, you know, when Moses asks, he says, I am, uh, I am, I am, you know, I am, I am. Hmm. So God is, I mean, he never gave himself agenda, not even in, in the Bible. So um, I often think of that. And, and, and in the Muslim culture, um, Muhammad I think it was his wife, um, had a lot of power, you know. Um, I don't know how it came to be that um, Muslim men um, sort of usurped that because women did have a lot of power then. And um, they were looked upon with great respect. Uh, But I have to admit that my experience when I read this book I, I was sort of um, surprised at myself that, uh, at the at the at the stereotypes that I had because of you know you see something and you think you might understand it but you don't because you're looking at it through the eyes of a Western world and values that you have. Um, but Muslim women are, are are just comfortable with whom they are, and they don't want their men um, demonized. And, you know, as, as I um, read this and started thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, the same thing exists among Black women. Uh, although I, I really think Black women are fighters. I have to tell you that because <laughs> I think they stand on their own two feet. I think they have supported their men tremendously because the black male has been under siege for many, many years. And, you know, women were really careful uh, to advise their sons uh, and their husbands about how to behave so that they didn't get harmed. So um, black women have probably had a lot more freedom than many other um, uh, women from many other other cat. Um, classes and we always I always um, felt that the women around me when I was growing up were really strong women I mean they came through a whole lot of stuff not that they didn't have hardships but they just you know gritted their teeth and got through them and I remember my great-grandmother was was really something she she was midway and um, when I would say you know I got hurt or something she said girl get up and I said, oh, my back. She said, you don't even have a back yet. You know, you, you have to develop a back. Um, and you don't know you have a back until you've carried something on it. So, you know, I, it was that kind of tough love that we had. But they were always there for us. 
we could observe that they always found an answer for stuff, uh, no matter how big a problem it seemed to be. Um, and I remember somebody saying, this was an author, you know, that Black women learned how to sweep, sweep out the ocean with a broom. Um, so didn't have much, but had a lot of inner strength. And I think a very strong faith. And I think that's what I heard and began to understand among the Muslim voices of women, because um, they were they were very firm about making a choice to show people that they honored their faith and that they um, they intended to to practice it, even though they can't worship in the same way that the men do. Um, they still wanted their voices heard and they wanted an outlet for their own creative expression. I thought that was really, really admirable to tell you the truth. Um, so um, I wonder where, what direction uh, this will take them. Um, I was thinking about having a class at Delta where um, I had a number of Iranian men uh, as students. They had gotten, their government had sent them to community college in the United States. So Delta had a number of those students and uh, we would have discussions. I was teaching sociology and, and the difference between cultural groups, et cetera. And there were some people in the class that raised the question about how Muslim men treated women and those guys defended their action. Uh, they did not deny it at all, but they said that, you know, we protect our women and the, the burqas that they wear, uh, the clothing, et cetera, that that is protective because we don't want other men uh, looking at them or um, exploiting them. So, you know, <laughs> you can take that with a grain of salt, but that was that was their argument. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that actually so that plays really well into the the next section because I think this directly corresponds to that. But I was reading this interview with Kimberly Crenshaw, and she, as I understand it, is one of the main thinkers behind intersectionality as a concept, and. She defined intersectionality as a lens through which you can see where power comes and collides, where it interlocks mm -hmm. and intersects. Um, but I really liked what she said later in the interview as well. She said, the other issue is that intersectionality can get used as a blanket term to mean, well, it's complicated. Sometimes it's complicated as an excuse not to do anything. And mm -hmm. I think she really, really called out how a lot of times when we say intersectionality, how it functions as sort of this like blanket concept of, um, of saying that, uh, you know, different levels of privilege exist, but then not really analyzing it and not hearing the individual voices within that either. So, and, and that article that you sent me, BB, earlier about the women of color who um, were being silenced in feminist organizations, I think that that shows that being played out that 
if you reduce a concept too much, if you say like, oh, we're just pro women's rights, but you don't really think about what the end goal is or, or what, um, what you're actually doing in, in function, how that's actually affecting the people around you, you can just say it's complicated and like throw up your hands and not actually do anything worthwhile. Yeah. But you know, you know, Kaylee, what I think is what they say is so complicated is complicated because people can't talk about it and they resist the conversation that would lead them to a better understanding of what is going on. Um, for example, the, the three organizations that um, are mentioned in this article from Lilly, um, they talk about AAUW, which surprised me actually, AAUW now, and uh, there's another one, um, the, oh gosh, now why can't I think of the name? Anyway, um, I'll think of that one later, but, but the point is that the women who run it have really just come into some empowerment themselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, in a way I understand that. And the story that I told about my godmother kind of, kind of um, illustrates that actually, because um, many times white women had been protected by their dads, their fathers first, married off to um, young men who were <laughs> pledged to protect them further. And no, really. Yeah. And so they never really had to do problem solving. You know, <laughs> they, they didn't have to bear those kinds of things. And so um, when, when white women got the opportunity to organize through now, for example, you know, this came out of Betty Friedan's um, Feminine Mystique. Um, when they got that opportunity, they all saw, they saw things in terms of what they needed, okay, what their situation was. But their situation was really quite different from what was happening to Black women, what was happening to Hispanic women, what was happening to other brown people, and, and what was happening to... Um, uh, LBGT people. So they had the power and they structured what they did, what the projects would be and what, the, and what they spent their money for to promote. They structured that according to how they saw it. And actually in a couple of cases, um, the president of now said, when somebody mentioned one of the, one of the black workers who was working there at the time, mentioned the um, tried to bring it up in staff meeting, actually, about the need to um, expand their agenda to look at and, and, and appeal and serve women of color and perhaps even um, Black men. They said, we don't care about that. And, you know, it was the truth. They didn't care about that, what they cared about. And they didn't deny that Black women experienced prejudice and discrimination in more areas than they did. But what was important to them was that they got ERA outs uh, passed so that they could handle and address the problems that they saw they had. Hmm. And, and that's the way it was. And that's how come um, Black women felt like they, 
they were not recognized or, or valued in that setting. Yeah, that that's also what really struck me about the article. Um, the sort of, sort of this like very trivial mentality, it seemed like came from the white female leaders that they really just wanted more of the same except women were in charge. Like literally just take a <laughs> copy and paste from the current patriarchal, racist, classist society and just paste it but then there are like women you know and <laughs> just how narrow narrow sighted that is but and the thing do you remember the part where they were going to do a demonstration um on the border did you you remember that part and they arranged with the police that they wanted to be arrested and then let go yes what <laughs> that was so ridiculous <laughs> yeah and the, the, the black staff member said, not me, because they won't treat me the same way. They may not let me go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't understand how you could think that would be a good idea unless you've only had positive encounters with police officers, which it seems like that must have been them for them to think that was okay. Like, Oh, my God. There's so many things wrong with that scenario. <laughs> well, yeah, but they did. They admitted they talked about it in staff media and said that they had arranged it. That arranged it. Oh, God. Uh, Wait, but what I was going to say is that you were talking about the um, women of color um, who were working for these or working or interning for these organizations. And they were talking about how they would give their ideas, but then they would just brush it off because "Eh, that's Mm -hmm. not something we really want to do. And they felt like tokens. they were tokens. Yes, but at the same time, don't don't let don't let yourself be a token. Because my thing is like we talked about this in like in uh, Robert's Fellows. They're like, you guys are because one of there's two um, black girls in me and another girl, and she's like, we were shocked that there was like every year they always have you know like. That you, you always have to have the diversity so you always notice it but we were we had the qualifications to be there we deserved to be there and um we were saying that like take it back because just because don't let don't let other people's how do i say this don't let other people putting you in certain positions have it seem that it's just because you're a person of color so like when you're in these high positions it isn't just because let me explain so like these girls who are interns yes they had they felt like they were there for show but they were there because they were qualified too Mm -hmm. so the same time yes they might you might not be appreciated but you deserve to be there and you deserve a seat at the table and um i just think like, yes, tokenism is real, but at the same time, you should take it back. Like, take back the power. Like, yes, even though I'm in this crazy position, like, I deserve to be here because of this, this, and this. Like, you are very qualified. And it just reminds me of this thing. Like, you guys know when they do, like, school promotion, and it's, like, a very white school, so you always got to pick out the minorities so it makes the school look diverse in the pamphlets. I'm serious. You know that? Yeah. That is a strategy. That's a strategy. <laughs> Um, if you get selected, go ahead and do it. It's a good opportunity. That's what I say. But 
you're right. It's a strategy. It's the, it's the difference between um, talking the talk. You always know how to say the right thing. But walking the walk is another thing. And how it appears is important to the institution. And that's, but, you know, I ran into the same thing when I was hired at Delta to, um, in the social science department to teach. And there were people that said they were, they had other, they had, they had um, others on the staff who had been recruited through affirmative action. I was not. And, but they put us all in the same bucket, okay? And, and so there was, there was a perception that we didn't get our jobs because of our qualifications. We got our jobs because we were black and came through affirmative action. And I had to really correct that several times because in fact, my qualifications were better than most other folk in the well, department. Yeah, but the other thing is just because just because um, you use affirmative action does not mean that you aren't qualified. It just means that they have to make sure that they have a certain amount. It doesn't mean that you're, that you can get them being less qualified. You have to be the same amount. No, you have to be more qualified. You have to be more qualified and they just need a certain amount. So that's not, I hate when people, Oh, you just got into this university. Oh, you just got in this program because you're black or you're a person of color. Da, da, da. Like that is a load of crap. Yeah. You are still qualified. Um, in and, fact, you are probably more qualified than some of them who are there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And oh my gosh. And I, I just remind. Hmm? Sorry, go ahead. It just reminds me of. <laughs> oh my gosh! It just reminds me of like the token, the like being the token. Like there was this time I was in this. Oh my god! I was my high school was trying to get more funding, and I went to a very white school, and they were doing a promotional video. And, you know, I was kind of involved in school. So I was in this leadership class and there was 50 of us and they needed us to like chant this like scripted saying. And we were in rows and, you know, they're like we all got up in our chairs and just, you know, got in whatever rows we wanted to. So, you know, I wanted to be low key. So I got in the back and I'm standing by my friend and I'm, you know, chanting what they wanted to say, like, oh, we love blah, 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 whatever. So then there. <laughs> I remember it was the superintendent, the principal, and then like the camera crew and like my teacher. And they, I remember the principal comes up to me. He's like, Ariana, you have such a great smile. You should come in the front. I said, no, no. <laughs> I said, no, they no. Brown they needed my little brown face. Yeah. I said, I was, mind you, I was the only black person in that room. Mm. And <laughs> I just remember I was sitting in the back. I was like, no, thank you. And he's like, no, no, come up here and switch with this kid, this white kid. And he's like, I want to be. <laughs> and I was just like, are you kidding me? I'm like, I you literally only did this because I was like, I'm okay back here. Like, you literally only did this because you needed it to look diverse. Like, you guys and want. not diverse if you're the only one. Yes, like diverse. having one person of color in there is not diverse. And the other thing is, you guys want to look like you have all this diversity, but then you don't actually care about diversity. You have all these, mm. like facades up which doesn't make any sense but that was just my story on like you know being the token but oh. I take that back because I deserve to be there you did and you probably were the the prettiest one there so I'm screaming <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you remind me of stories talking about education it's really interesting because I went to work for the Bay City Public Schools as a school social worker and I wrote a grant that um, 
Well, first of all, they had a lot of, of, of um, turbulence going on at the high school. And the only person who knew anything about how to talk at with and work with community was me. So I got put on special assignment, okay? So then um, I wrote a grant for what we called an alternative school, which was really the first one in the state, I think. And it was um, a setting that we could reach out to those kids that were having issues. Sometimes they were with drugs. Sometimes they were just disturbed about something. But this this grant we wrote along with the Child Guidance Center. So we had a, co a collaborative going on. And when I, I was made director of that school, so... I had to meet with uh, the principals, the two principals of the high school and the superintendent and the assistant superintendent was the administrative team. And so I, you know, I had kids to get out to school, so I couldn't get to the meeting. They started at eight o'clock, right? So I said, look, I cannot be there at eight o'clock because I have to get my kids off to school. And so I can be there by, you know, by nine. Well, they didn't want to change the time of the meeting, right? And this is, this is four men, four or five men and me, right? Four or five white men and me. So anyway, I would get there. They'd be having coffee and stuff. They did wait around, but they met at eight o'clock. And so when I came in at nine, they would start the formal meeting. And when they get to a subject, they say, oh, we talked about this. You know, we've already talked, discussed this. We, uh, they met on the golf course or they talked about it when they got there. So I thought, oh, you know, Am I going to be part of this decision making or not? So finally, I said to them, look, you know what? You better go back to that because I don't know a thing about that. And I want, you know, I have some things I want to say. So anyway, they, they did go back. They would go back and discuss the subject. And um, and I'd get a chance to put my input in. But so one, one morning I went in and the principal of Central High School said to me, as we're going back again, he said, you know, this was a really good group before you came in it. <laughs> and it just tickled me no end because I thought, yeah, of course, because they were just good old boys together. You know, they'd, they'd meet on the golf course and talk about school stuff or they'd meet early in the morning, have coffee and talk about school stuff. Well, you know, I was different. So, but I had a responsibility and I needed to be there when, you know, they could have at least given me the courtesy of meeting at a time I could meet. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting insight, and um, I laugh about it now. In fact, when I saw him recently, he's been retired for a long time, too. Uh, we laughed about it, but it was uncomfortable for them to have me, you know, there who didn't really fit in that group. Now, they like to say, you know, well, we got, we've got um, diversity, too. We have, and they wrote, a, listen, they covered this in the Bay City Times, the paper, made a big deal out of the fact that I had gotten this appointment. So, you know, the, they, they like to talk the talk, but the point is it's very different when you get inside because people really don't know how to walk it, you know. And sometimes you just plain have to teach them. Simple as that. Wow. Yeah, it that's... also begs the question, though, how much work is really getting done on the golf course? None. Yeah, for one thing, the whole, you know, that's obviously <coughs> racist, this whole good old boys culture. But then also, like, is it really even efficient or conducive to actually anything happening? Probably not. You know, they're having fun and, 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 and having conversation. 
So what they said to me was, we talked about it, and we decided that it might be, we might do this. And I'm saying, wait, wait a minute, you know, that may not be the best thing, and I need to have some input to this because my school is affected too. So um, I'm afraid they they thought I was too forward, you know. God forbid a black woman have something to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, did you, Kaylee, did you have any more comments that you wanted to say? Um, I did, but I lost it because that story distracted me. So it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I I always love talking with Phoebe. And it's, it's been, I think this might be my new favorite episode. I'll, I'll have to wait until I listen to it again. <laughs> but. Kaylee, I have a question I want to ask you. Because, you know, we were just talking about faith. And Muslim women are very active, you know, in their faith, even though they are segregated from the men. Um, And black women are usually very active in their churches. How is it in your church? Are the women active? Do they take leadership roles? Uh, (laughs) So, uh, I don't, yeah, it's a complicated question. Like, (laughs) um, I, I mean, I've been a part of, pretty much for most of my life, like some fairly conservative Baptist churches. And it's been really interesting for me because I, like I've encountered a lot of different types of women wait to what the one writer in it's all, it's not about the burqa said about defending feminism in the church, but then also defending the church to feminists and outside circles, because there's, there's definitely a lot of patriarchy within my circles that I've been a part of so Hmm. but but what about the young people though in your church um in my experience it's not that much better (laughs) I feel like don't think so no I feel like a lot of the girls my age who are Christian I mean it's really sad a lot of my close friends who I think are fairly critical thinking but have pretty much given up on the church and left and and I don't I don't necessarily agree with their reason why I think it's sort of short-sighted to do that because I think if you reduce faith to the people of course you're going to leave but but faith is about God and it's about more than that um but but other people my age just seem to like want to get married right away and I, I don't like reduce people to either or I think people are complex but in my experience it seems to be people are either like getting married as soon as they're out of high school or college and there doesn't be a very like nuanced conversation in female leadership within that other than just like female Bible studies that tend to be about Proverbs 31 and that's it. Or like a lot of girls my age just tend to leave the church. So it's, it's sort of discouraging. I don't mean to be depressing, but that's been my experience with it. Hmm. That, that, that is unfortunate because you would expect them to have a little bit different view, you know, in, in this day and time. So, so where did you get your your liberal views, Katie? <laughs> where, where, where did they come from? Um, I don't know. Like I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I mean, my dad has always been fairly progressive, um, and like he he definitely like taught me to read, and he always taught me to think critically about things. And and now I think he regrets that sometimes because sometimes we argue. But, um, like, he <laughs> he taught me the rules of logic from a young age. He taught me how to read, and he taught me to love reading. And, and I think that's 
that's the main reason I have the opinions I have. Um, and then also like my friends have taught me a lot. I have obviously Ariana's a very smart person who has taught me a lot. Um, and then I have a lot of friends who are Muslim, a lot of friends who, um, I do have friends who are Christian and then are also like grappling with this as well. And their friendships mean a lot to me as well. So yeah, I don't know. I guess God, God is the best answer for like why I am the way I am. That's sort of a, the baseline, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you are really, I, I see you as a, as a, um, an adventurous. I mean, you're not afraid of new situations. Uh, actually, sometimes I think it sounds to me like you seek them out. I mean, that's the way you learn about the world, really. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do seek out new situations. But yeah, I agree. That's definitely the way to learn about the world. You can't just stay in your same um, situation and think that. Yeah, but that's you, Kaylee. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> no, I think you'll go far. That is really the way that, you know, if you want to know people, and the, the point is not to reject before you, before you find out what is going on. Um, I mean, when I think about, when I really think about this burqa thing and ask myself, how is this similar um, with women in other places. I mean, I you could you could um, see relationships between the voices of these women and the voices of women in Africa, in Asia. A um, little bit different culture, a little bit of value um, experience, but women are really struggling at this point. And actually, women have a lot to um, to offer and to bring. Uh, because they approach problem solving so differently than men, you know. Um, I think women are the healers. Men, men want to be warriors. And um, so many of them, I won't say that about all of them, but there are many of them who do. And we could we could resolve so many more problems if we approached it in a more understanding manner of where people were coming from you know, and what their prior experience had been. So, so I admire where you're going and um, I say Godspeed. Thank you. Yeah. I, I really like what you said. And especially like in terms of problem, problem solving, I think critical thinking is often posed as the opposite of collectivist thinking. So if you're thinking independently, you're not thinking in terms of the group, but I don't think that those are necessarily opposites. I think you can think on your own, but also think for the collective good. And, and just because you're thinking in terms of like the needs of others, that doesn't mean that you're thinking in like conforming to everybody else, but. No. And thinking about the collective good and um, the com we used to call that the common good is a good thing because we do have to live together. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank have you. We given about time. <laughs> we went over, didn't we? I mean, like, there's no set time that we have. We just talk as long as oh, okay. the conversation will yeah. allow. It's gone oh. from like I think our first episode was 20 minutes. <laughs> it's evolved a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, BB slapped the table, so I guess we're done. She slapped. She said her final words. <laughs> So, BB, thank you for joining us on this episode. It's always a good time. 
Um, well, thank you both. Actually, it's 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 a joy to be invited. She's over here smiling. <laughs> oh, Kaylee, do you have any last words before we sign off? As you said, um, yeah, no, it's been a really great conversation. So, thank you for listening. If you've made it this long, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> if you listen to this whole thing, thank you so much. And BB also thanks you. All right, signing off. So I guess signing off.